As you take your seats, please turn your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James 1 is found on page 1011, 1011 of the Black Pew Bible there in front of you. And I'll read our text this evening, James chapter 1, starting at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I hope you caught that last bit, verse 4. Go ahead and look there again. He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that sounds like a rather lofty goal, perfection. Uh, the, the Greek word behind that's a little complicated. It's not a, you know, perfection uh, in the most perfect sense. Uh, it means without lack. He, he defines it. He says perfect, complete. Those are synonyms. And then he says it in a third way to, to round it out, lacking in nothing. It's the, it's the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, be ye perfect, even as my heavenly Father is perfect. It's that same Greek word, teleus, which means complete, or elsewhere it's put as mature. One of the ways to translate this line, verse 4, is that he wants us to be complete and whole, lacking nothing, or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the goal that uh, the Apostle Paul shares at in the beginning of Colossians 1, uh, his ministry, he's explaining to the Colossians, Colossians 1 verse 28, it says, Him we proclaim, that's Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that mature word is teleos, or complete, perfect, whole. I've been around a lot of ministries, churches, preachers, that's, that's not the goal of their ministry. It, it, rather, the goal of the ministry often seems like uh, sympathy for your brokenness, just so that you could limp forward one more week. Congratulations on making it to church. We're so glad. We know it's hard to get here, and we're, we're glad you made it, and you know things are hard, and you're broken, and I'm broken, and the Lord is gracious, high on sympathy, low on direction. Well, the Apostle James in the book of James ha has a far loftier goal, and I, I think it'll be a, a helpful unifying principle really for the whole of the book. The goal he sets out here, it's the goal your, your pastoral staff, your elders have for you, it's what James has for you, it's what our Lord Jesus has for you, that you would be perfect, teleos, complete, a Christian in complete armor, even as Gurnall would say, or uh, an oak of righteousness. You will not stay in this meager, broken state, but that you would be whole and complete. Now, to get to that end this evening, we have three simple points, the first two really relating to the whole of the book, and the last really getting into verses two through four. The first point we'll look at together is the author 
of this book. Second, we'll discuss the audience of this book. And thirdly, the audit. You know, keep it all together nicely for our minds. Author, audience, and audit. And of course, the audit will be an audit of the soul, especially what we believe, what we think, what we know about suffering and counting it all joy. But first, we have to understand the author. You know, coming through Christmas time, I, I'm thankful. Um, we, we get lots of uh, gifts from grandparents and everyone uh, sending us things. It's wonderful. I, I appreciate my mother-in-law. She sends many gifts, uh, but she labels them all with a little handy label, you know, from and to. Um, my mother and our family, and we just use Sharpie on the, on the exterior of the thing. It's not very pretty. Um, but the from and the to is very helpful. And indeed, the from and the to is the, it's the parts needed for an ancient Greek official greeting. That's what, you know, whether it's Paul or Peter at the beginning of every letter, whether it's ornate or whether it's simple, it has these two parts, author and audience. And there in verse 1, he identifies himself, the author, as James. And notice it says, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but really it's just James. There's no son of, there's no James from, Jerusalem or Antioch. It's no James, son of Alphaeus, or James, son of Zebedee, which leaves questions for us, of course. Basically, all the commentators point out that really within the first generation of the church, there are only so many Jameses that could say this letter's from James, and you ought to know who it's from. You know, like Oprah. You got a letter from Oprah, you know, who sends, or, or LeBron, Send you, you know, there's only one LeBron, really, that everybody knows. So, so it is with James, as the commentators point out. That really, there are two big Jameses, James the Greater, James the Lesser, uh, James the son of Zebedee, brother of John, you know, part of the, the big three around Jesus in his earthly ministry. Uh, he's a cousin of Jesus, known as the Greater James, he, but he, he's martyred for his faith rather early in 44 A.D., there's a consensus that that is a little too early for this book to be written. Uh, and the, tr- the tradition of the church does not point to James, the son of Zebedee. Rather, the tradition of the church generally agrees about the author being James the Just, identified as the brother of Jesus, also the bishop of Jerusalem. Famously, in Acts 15, he is essentially the, the major pastor over all of the Jerusalem church. Now, the most common pushback against uh, that theory of authorship, that it's James the Just, the brother of Jesus, the, the apostle the, uh, identified by Paul in Acts, or Galatians 1.19, that it's that James, is that, he, you know, why doesn't he give any of that resume? You know, Peter and Paul will often give, you know, you know some kind of identifying clarity. Why does James seek to leave that off? Indeed, modern scholarship makes a, a big deal about how common uh, pseudepigraphic writings or basically forgeries were in the first century. You, you write something under a famous name, and perhaps, I don't know, you sell some copies of it or you make some kind of profit. But Douglas Moo, uh, a commentator and professor of New Testament at Wheaton's Graduate School, points out what L.R. Donaldson, the expert in the field, says. He says, no one ever seems to have accepted a document as religiously and philosophically prescriptive which was known to be forged. He says, I do not know of a single example. And Dr. Moo goes on. He says, the very fact that James was accepted as a canonical book then presumes that the early Christians who made this decision were sure that James 
wrote it. So that the tradition, even modern evangelical scholarship, Bible-believing scholarship, uh, there's a consensus around this being James, the brother of Jesus. But again, you know, why doesn't he mention? You know, if, there's, if there's one thing to throw out as your card, you know, I'm the brother of Jesus. Watched him grow up. I was there um, for all these things. <clears throat> and, and the answer seems to be at some level that it's not his brother to Jesus-ness that gives him his authority. Uh, that's not the reason you should listen to him. Remember, Jesus had a quite awkward relationship with his mother and brothers. Memorably, in uh, Matthew 12, Jesus is teaching a crowded house, and they bring word to him saying, you know, Jesus, your, your mother and brothers are outside, like a word with you. Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He says, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever the will, does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. No, no, no. See, the thing that identifies this James, the James the just, is exactly what he says there in verse 1, that he is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, perhaps we are too hard sometimes on our family members, writing them off, thinking that, uh, we, you know, we know them, we know uh, they're not really going to change, they are the way they are, and yet James, at some point, seems to go from someone who's annoyed by Jesus, even embarrassed by Jesus and His claims and His healing ministry, to someone who identifies himself as doulos. Servant is a little too soft. Slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Christos, Messiah. Now, as the pastor in Jerusalem, the household of the Jews, bedrock of where Judaism starts, of course, to say he is the Messiah, it's a rather bold claim to make. James, indeed, is rather bold. He is Pastor James. Perhaps um, more helpfully, in my mind, he, he's Preacher James. This whole book, it preaches. Every line is punchy. You can even just look at the next couple paragraphs on page one of James chapter one. It says, let the lowly brother exalt in his exaltation, or over at verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You know, paragraph by paragraph, he's preaching. He is getting after it, and uh, it's, it's a rather fun book to read and to study together. Uh, of the 108 verses in the book of James, 50 are imperatives. We will not be low on direction. No, preacher James is going to bring it every week. Uh, the letter uh, as, a, as a whole does not flows so obviously together. It's, it's certainly not a, a Pauline-style letter. Paul's letters have a logical flow. You can see how the previous paragraph relates to the next paragraph. James is less like that. Some say it's something like the book of Proverbs for the New Testament. To me, it reads so, somewhat like the Sermon on the Mount, where there are pericopes or, or teaching sections that relate perhaps in one way or another, but aren't so clearly flowing together. My dear professor at Wheaton, Dr. Leland Riken, points out that the book of James is a great example of the ancient Greek genre of a diatribe. Indeed, James goes on one diatribe after another. The, the, the marks of a diatribe are its imaginary dialogue, which he has plenty of, its direct address, listen, brothers, and its general harshness, which James, um, it's, it's a punchy book. Let's prepare yourselves. So that James, the brother of Jesus, pastor, preacher, or first Presbyterian in Jerusalem, 
James the Just. He indeed is our author. And secondly, our audience, which is another fascinating two. If we have the from James, servant of God, and the two, the twelve tribes in the dispersion, um, both those parts, the twelve tribes part and the dispersion part, are interesting, even ironic. Uh, the, the twelve tribes is surprising uh, way of address, because to take it in any kind of literal sense would be um, missing a point, because the, the, the twelve tribes are largely lost to history. That is, when Assyria, you know, defeats the northern um, part of Israel in 722, and they are taken into exile in Assyria, there is a dispersion. And basically, ten of the tribes of Israel are lost to history. Indeed, when 586 in the Judean kingdom is taken to exile in Babylon, the last two tribes, Benjamin of the south, Benjamin and Judah, uh, seem to continue clearly. But to speak of twelve tribes in any, in any literal sense, uh, it, does, it doesn't connect. But, how can we might make sense of it? The Old Testament prophets are repeatedly prophesying of the coming days when those tribes that are lost, that are dispersed, would come together again. Those dispersed would be congregated at a new and grand temple under a new and glorious Son of David. And of course, this is Jesus' implicit claim in establishing not eight or ten disciples, but twelve disciples. He, he tells them as clear as day, Matthew 25, Jesus says, "'Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel.'" And of course, from where James sits, Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is the King that's come, and His followers, the church, is the true Israel, is the true twelve tribes, reconstituted. Indeed, what's happening on the day of Pentecost? But the nations have gathered. Why is there need to be this tongues miracle where their speech is magically, in a sense, translated into all the people there? It's, it's a, but a foreshadowing of what we are told happens in Revelation 7, when 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes, the full number of the 12 tribes of Israel before the throne of God. There's a lot in what James says when he calls them the 12 tribes, the true Israel, spiritual Israel, Israel by faith, and those who are of the dispersion. Indeed, the dispersion was the way of speaking about what had happened to those tribes that had been put all over the world. You know, as Paul goes to Ephesus and to Rome and to Corinth, they all have synagogues, they all have dispersed Jews that has become the, the, the seedbed of the church. But as he applies it here to the true twelve tribes, to the Christian church, uh, it has a, a note of, indeed, the current events in the church. We know from the book of Acts that uh, the early church is by and large Jewish converts, Jewish converts who are being persecuted from one place to the next. The hammer of persecution falls on one city, and they disperse to another city. So that the twelve tribes, the true church of the new churchly dispersion, those who are persecuted, those who perhaps grew up in a good Jewish home and have begun to follow the true Messiah, indeed, they're being cut off. They're being persecuted. His original audience 
just to a struggling church, presumably in the late 40s and early 50s under heavy persecution. So that when you combine our author, pastor, preacher, James the Just, with his audience, the persecuted early primarily Jewish church, got to have this in the back of our minds as we begin to read and study what James has to say to us. And he uh, doesn't hold much back. Our third point, the audit, the audit for our souls. I, I, I haven't been audited, praise the Lord, but I imagine that when the IRS auditor comes, he wants the receipts or something, the proof of where you've spent your, your, your money. Your true financial state is what the auditor, I assume, seeks to find out. And in a sense, that's what your pastor wants too. Uh, I want, when I meet with you, I want to know how things are uh, in your soul. Indeed, that's what James is interested in also. He wants to know the true state of our soul. And James, um, he, he's not coy. Verse 2, it's a shot right over the bow. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's speaking, remember, to a people who are basically mostly refugees on the run for their lives in persecution. They're hungry, they're afraid, they're cold, they're sorrowing over lost loved ones, broken relationships. And Pastor James is looking them in the eye, telling them to count it joy. We should be clear, he's not calling them or us to some sort of uh, masochism or strange pleasure in suffering or trials, nor is He forbidding in any way a, a healthy Christian sorrow, mourning with those who mourn. No, of course, Jesus weeps at the grave of Lazarus, nor is He brazenly calling you to some kind of pie-in-the-sky, new-age, positive thinking, count it all joy. No, James here, I, I think is, it's helpful to think of him responding coming to us as a pastor, almost as a first responder. You know, you, you wreck your car, and you're on the side of the highway, and uh, the ambulance driver comes up, or whoever, the paramedic comes up, and he doesn't come up and ask you, well, how do you feel? Or, you know, uh, it's, you know, what, what does he say? Well, he, he speaks directly. He says, remain calm, help is on the way. He says, you're going to be okay. He starts preaching to them. That's the way the first responder comes to the hurting person in the situation. The first responder speaks with urgency directly and plainly to the person in the situation. Similarly, you go to the ER and you have a gash on your arm, and the ER, if it's bleeding bad, you know, the doctor hopefully doesn't come in with a lot of small talk. No, he comes in and he gets the business, stitching up what's wrong, seeking to bring, I think James here, spiritual medicine to spiritual trauma, to suffering, he knows that these churches, these Christians, their faith has been shaken, just like yours has, or just like yours will be. It happens to all Christians. Notice in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not, not if you meet trials of various kinds. No, it comes for everyone. This is the Christian life from Abraham to Jacob to David to Jesus to Paul to you. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. And we know there, there is, you know, or I know, we all know, there's every reason you know, to, to, to not 
count our trials and tribulations and sufferings as joy. Indeed, the whole world is telling you to just take the Tylenol, to avoid the pain, avoid the stress and the strain, avoid that toxic person in your family or in your office or uh, in your life, or don't take that job, it'll be too stressful. We know our, our age worships at the altar of comfort and convenience. We all have a strategy to avoid the mental or psychological or physical pain. But notice where James takes us. Verse 4 says, let the steadfastness have its full effect. He says, let, let it have its full effect. Don't cut off the pain before the gain. James is saying something wildly striking. Indeed, our whole civilization further believes that you indeed are your feelings. Really, there's no controlling them. There's just being them. Indeed, you should embrace them. In fact, to delegitimize your feelings is seen as harsh, cruel, and dangerous. Paul is here saying, in, in total antithesis, indeed, to count your trial not as a miserable hassle. He's not bringing simple sympathy. He's saying, don't listen to your feelings about your trials and sufferings. He's saying, rather, no, verse 2, count it, consider it. Consider. He's calling you to think in verse 2. That's what count it means. Think about it. Do not be a victim of your feelings, a victim of the discouragement that always comes in the midst of our suffering and trials. No, he says, let your mind, what you know to be true, lead your feelings rather than your feelings allowing it to lead your mind and your heart. Few things could be more countercultural. Indeed, you know, people show up to a church and uh, they get a feel for the vibe. And they, you know, perhaps it's the aesthetic, or perhaps they, they choose the church by how it made them feel instead of trying to look deeper into the unseen. Um, spiritual and theological convictions and the integrity with which the people live them out. Now, James is saying we need to be a conviction-driven people, a people that consider what we know, that consider the truth. That's what he says in verse 3. He's doing this based on what you know, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, I do think that uh, there is both an implicit knowledge and an explicit knowledge there in verse 3. The implicit knowledge, I think, that James is assuming is their knowledge about God. They know the truth about God, that He is all-powerful, that He's sovereign, that nothing comes to pass that does not come from His own hand. Indeed, their sufferings, their trials, their tribulations are from God. He assumes this. Nothing happens outside of His will. He further assumes what they know that, indeed, God is not only all-powerful but all-good. As Paul explains, working all things together for good. I say that's the implicit knowledge, not said explicitly in verse 3, but it's there, I don't doubt. But what he does point to explicitly in verse 3 is that the, the testing of faith produces steadfastness, or what I like to call the, the no pain, no gain principle. The no pain, no gain principle. It, it, it's a weight room principle. If you want strength, uh, you want to build, you have to stress, strain the muscle, you have to exhaust your muscle to the point of pain if you want to grow stronger. And that's tr- what's true in the weight room. Weight room is also true in the prayer closet. What's true physically is true spiritually. 
You know the testing of your faith produces, it stretches, it strengthens to steadfastness or endurance. And the implication here further is that you don't really know the strength of something until you've tested it. You know, it's one thing to say that you can bench 300 pounds. It's another thing to get on the bench and have the weight on your chest. It's one thing to sing together, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. It's another thing to follow Jesus in the midst of oppressive, never giving up temptation. It's another thing to follow Jesus, to trust God when you lose the baby, when your marriage begins to unravel, when your child has cancer when you lose your job, when you're just going through high school. It's another thing to trust God when you can't sleep. No, when you go through these trials and tribulations and you come out on the other side and you trust Him through it, there is a knowledge, a confidence that must come, a completeness, a wholeness, a health. When you've tasted the comfort that He gives in the face of death, when you have seen how He provides for you when the job has been lost, when you have had, when you have not uh, given in to the temptation, and you have found Christ to be enough, the spiritual muscles begin to show some definition. There begins to be proof in your life, steadfastness, endurance. James, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is saying, lean into the trial, the testing, the suffering, Verse 4, let it have its effect. Uh, there, there are only a couple people in my life that aren't actually crazy, that seem a little crazy when it comes to training. They're either football coaches or special forces guys in the Army and Navy and such. And, and the football coaches are plentiful. I, I've been watching the, the Swamp Kings documentary on the 2005 or 2004 or 2006 Florida Gator football team. And Tim Tebow is one of these guys. Yeah, they're, they're talking, telling the story of the Gators and uh, Urban Meyer, the coach, has them doing workouts from midnight to 2 a.m. Really to, to, to filter out the guys that really aren't bought into the whole program, to, to weed out the weenies, as it were. And, um, and Tebow says, those were the best nights of my life. <laughs> He's a little crazy. He's not actually crazy. He's a great guy, good Christian and all that. But in this, he, he, he is a little screws. And, and, and the Navy SEALs, and if you've ever seen the Hell Week and all their businesses they train, they have these sayings. They're always saying to one another, embrace the pain. When it gets hard, you embrace the pain. They tell each other, embrace the pain. Or perhaps you've, I think it was an army or something slogan at some point, you know, pain is weakness leaving the body. No, um, the perspective those semi-crazy people have physically in their physical training is in some ways the right spiritual attitude towards suffering the Christian ought to have. Not to be afraid in the suffering, to trust God in the suffering and to have a strength that comes and brings us through. This is what James says. He has a crazy glit in his eye, a half crazy, count it joy, brothers, when trials of various kinds come. It's what James wants. It's what Jesus wants. It's what your pastors want for you. That you might count it joy so that you may be counted complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. 
mature, fully grown, a force to be reckoned with, you know, one who stands unafraid in what the world has to bring to us. There will be trials and tribulations. We are entering a new age of the church in America, no doubt about it. And so, of our spiritual audit, the question ought to come, how do you think about pain and suffering, trials and tribulations? You probably have to change your mind about the way you think of them. Are we able to embrace the pain and trust God through the trial? This is indeed just the the beginning of our study in the book of James. We've seen the author and the audience, and we're referring to that week by week as we work our way through the book. But James isn't calling us to anything that our Lord Jesus himself doesn't call us unto. When he says, take up your cross daily and follow him, Jesus is saying the same thing. Don't flinch when it comes to your trials. Jesus himself set his face like flint to Jerusalem. He went towards the cross, towards the suffering. He embraced the pain, didn't count the shame of the cross, something to be avoided. So Christians who follow in his way, we're not going to wallow in our brokenness together. We will strive together for completeness, wholeness, health, to be a man, women, people of the cross, well-equipped. So we pray together. Father in heaven, help us to indeed count it all joy, to see the bigger picture, to know what we know about you, O Lord, about your sovereignty, your providence over all things, that nothing happens that you do not allow, and that you are good, you will bring us through, and that indeed the, the pain we feel you will use to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith, to make us steadfast, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.